from the newsroom of the Washington Post. Hello, hey you. Here's Cindy Isabek from the Washington Post. Washington Post. This is Wesley. It's Lori Aritani over at the Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Kimberly Kelly. It's Friday, March 1st. Today, how a new documentary could redefine Michael Jackson's legacy. Tensions along the India-Pakistan border. And the wait for Robert Mueller. He told me if they ever found out what we were doing, he and I would go to jail for the rest of our lives. Leaving Neverland is a four-hour documentary from filmmaker Dan Reed, and it is a gripping, fascinating, and disturbing account from two men about what happened when they were boys and hanging out with Michael Jackson. Everybody wanted to meet Michael or be with Michael. And then he likes you. Post-TV critic Hank Stuver says the new HBO documentary, Leaving Neverland, may be powerful enough to rewrite the Michael Jackson legacy. The documentary airs this Sunday and focuses on Wade Robson, now 36, and James Safechuck, now 41, who say they were sexually abused by Jackson as children. I want to be able to speak the truth as loud as I had to speak the lie for so long. It's very complicated for them because they really did have a relationship with Michael Jackson, and it felt like a relationship. It felt like they had a special companion in Michael, and it involved sex. But the way Jackson's relationship started with Robson and Safe Chuck seemed harmless. Well, you have to go back to the 1980s, sometime between Thriller and Bad. James Safechuck, he's 41 now, but in 1986, 87, he did a Pepsi commercial. Remember, Michael Jackson was the big spokesperson for Pepsi, the new generation. You're a whole new generation. You're dancing through the day. You're grabbing for the magic on the run. And it was a commercial that a lot of people probably remember. Mr. Jackson? There's a little boy, and he's in Michael Jackson's dressing room, and he's snooping around, and suddenly behind him, who catches him? Michael Jackson. Looking for me? And they become fast friends and do a little dance and drink a little Pepsi. That started a friendship. Michael liked James, and and James says he was not a big Michael Jackson fan, but the family was invited to a concert. James was invited up, up on stage. People recognized the Pepsi kid. And from there, they started traveling with Michael Jackson. And before you know it, James and Michael Jackson are spending the night together in a Paris hotel room. And his mother didn't like that idea at first and wouldn't let James stay in Michael's rooms but they were all so starstruck, and Michael seemed so innocent, and they, and they speak very well about how much fun it was to be around Michael Jackson and how safe they felt. The days were filled with magical childhood adventure experiences. And that's where the abuse started for James Safechuck and continued for many years. Even though they don't really know each other and have never seen each other, Wade Robson, who is, was born in Australia won a dance contest in 1987. First up is the eight-year-old Brisbane dancer who has impressed everyone from Michael Jackson on down, Wade Robson. And the prize was you got to meet Michael Jackson. And he was, this, he was just one of those little kids of the 80s who idolized Michael Jackson and could do the moonwalk and could do the dances. 
And he got invited to the concert and met Michael Jackson, and it changed his life. He started pursuing dance. And if you know anything about Wade Robson, you know that he's a well-known choreographer. He worked with NSYNC and Britney Spears, and he has a, a, a really good career that was helped a lot by Michael Jackson over the years as a choreographer. But Wade says that he was abused by Michael Jackson starting at age seven at Neverland for the following seven years. What do they allege happened once they became close to Michael Jackson? And obviously, it's different for the two of them. So let's start with Wade. Wade says that he his first sexual encounter with Michael Jackson happened early on. It happened at Neverland, and it happened in Michael's bed. Wade and his sister had been invited to stay in Michael's room at Neverland, which is a series of rooms. The sister's in another room. Wade is in bed with Michael Jackson. Michael Jackson fondles Wade and asks Wade to reciprocate, basically. And to answer your question about James, he was in a Paris hotel with Michael Jackson. And by then, his mother had sort of relented and let him spend the night in Michael's suite. And it's the same story. It starts with fondling. It gradually becomes more intense. It's, you know, if, if you want me to say it, it's... It's a lot of sex. All of this is detailed in the four-hour documentary in a very careful, very unadorned, but very detailed way. And it can be difficult to watch. I I will tell – people have been asking me since my review posted, am I going to be able to watch this? And I think it is in the telling and in the carefulness with which these men tell their story and the forthrightness and the honesty that you actually can take it. How were these alleged acts allowed to take place with, in some cases, you know, the family living nearby and relocating? Were they not around? Were they just not being told? Were they not picking up on the signs? Or were these families kind of groomed in some sort of way where they were made promises where they kind of didn't see this coming? I think the documentary makes pretty clear that there's this, this is a very special kind of grooming going on. First of all, it is high-end. It is first-class plane tickets. It is hotels. It is shopping. So these families feel as if this very important, very special person has come into their lives, and he's very innocent. Just kid things. They were just doing kid things. He just came across as a loving, caring, kind soul. It was easy to believe that he was just that. And he just wants a friend. And we all sort of know and we all sort of witness that Michael Jackson didn't get a childhood. And so that was always the story, was that because he gave his childhood to us as a performer, he was deprived of a childhood. And that is why he enjoys the company of children. He loves children. When they talk about what happened now, how do they express this? This is why I ask people to watch the entire thing, which is, does take two nights and four hours. The last half hour on Monday night, Um, as it concludes, is really all about this, all about the fact that these two men have come out so late with this that, you know, after years of official testimony and just general reassurance to everyone they know that Michael Jackson never abused them, now they're coming out with intense stories of abuse and very good memories of it and very credible, very reliable. And so... Each of these men, their wives are in the documentary. Their wives are very articulate about feelings and asking their husbands over the years, did anything really ever happen? And wondering why they're depressed and wondering why they're bottled up and 
finally, when it all comes out, as Wade Robson says, the the truth is is so much more of a relief than having to keep the lie, even as bad as the fallout is. And so the families are obviously torn apart. Forgiveness is tricky. Blame is tricky. The moms feel terrible. The moms are both interviewed at length. You know, it's 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 fascinating to watch these families process what happened. How do you reconcile that with the fact that these are two people, both Robson and Safechuck, who were witnesses or legally stood behind Jackson when he was tried for molestation in 2005? That's exactly what the Jackson family is saying. Like, why are they recanting testimony? Why are they recanting what they've said in depositions and on the stand? And again, I think, I think it's a perfectly reasonable answer. We weren't ready. And by the way, there was like a lot of financial factors going on here. I mean, there were low-interest loans from Michael Jackson to the Safechuck family to buy a house because they had done so well defending Michael Jackson. You know, I mean, it's very complicated. And that's Wait, low-interest loans? What do you mean? It's Stephanie Safechuck in this documentary. Who's Stephanie? She's James's mom. Mm-hmm. Tells us in the documentary that Michael Jackson gave she and her husband a low-interest loan to buy a bigger house because, not stated, but implied and understood that because they were loyal to Michael Jackson and because Jimmy had not told anything, the family's still thinking Michael Jackson is our friend and he's giving us a way to afford a house. And then Michael Jackson forgives the loan after Jimmy has once again said, I was never touched by Michael Jackson. I was never abused by Michael Jackson. You are not always the TV critic for The Washington Post. You actually covered the trial when Jackson was acquitted. What do you remember? Almost a ghost. I remember taking notes one day because I was sitting behind him, and he would come every day with his parents. He was very frail, porcelain in appearance. And I just thought, there's no, there's barely, there's barely a person there. What does Leaving Neverland do that any past reporting about Jackson's 2005 molestation trial didn't do? The documentary makes me rethink everything I was seeing in 2005. It makes me more likely now to believe the victims in the 2005 case. I really do feel that that case was the right charge and the wrong evidence. It just didn't stand up enough to convict, which I also firmly believe in, that you know, the burden is on the state to prove, right? What was the thing that was giving you the most like, kind of visceral reaction from the documentary? It's the insidious way that, that what was going on broke up families. James and Wade started to resent their families even being nearby because they were getting in the way of their Michael time. And even though the families were getting to go shopping and getting to go to concerts and flying first class, it was really all about the boy, either boy. And the long-term effects on their families is what I really came away with. Like, I had really for once stopped to think about the way an act like this ripples outward. Can you give me an example? Well, you know, Wade Robson's father committed suicide in 2002. He was bipolar. But he, you know, it was very upsetting when Wade's mother moved to the United States with Wade and his sister and left the father behind. This was all because... Michael Jackson was so irresistible to them, you know. And I think for everyday people still, like, the, the arrival of a celebrity in their life has such an impact that, that we never even consider, especially when you cover entertainment and you get kind of used to it, you know. 
particularly these days, there's there's so many allegations of sexual assault or abuse. We have cases of Bill Cosby, uh, Louis C.K., uh, where the public is challenged with supporting the alleged survivors and consuming the predators' art. And so how do you think that Leaving Neverland will impact how people consume Michael Jackson's art? It's different because it's music. And you can't go grocery shopping in the United States of America without hearing Billie Jean or Beat It or Thriller or Bad. The 80s are everywhere. I don't know if you've noticed. And Michael Jackson is never not on those playlists, especially everything from Thriller and Bad and Dangerous. And, you know, so I will tell you that while I was putting off watching this film, because I'm just like anybody else, I have to be ready for something that hard. I can't just dive right in. So, I was hearing Michael Jackson. I was like, that's interesting. I wonder if this movie is so convincing that it will make people think about it when they hear Michael Jackson on the radio and will it make them turn the station? Um, And I had that experience this morning. I was getting ready for work and I turned on, you know, the cable channels have all those music offerings and I had the 80s on and, you know, darned if Thriller didn't come on. And I thought, you know, I'm turning it off. I'm turning it off. And I think a lot of people will have the same reaction. Hank Stuver is the TV critic for The Post. Michael Jackson's brothers spoke out against these sexual assault allegations on CBS's This Morning, saying, quote, I know my brother. I don't have to see the documentary. Tensions between India and Pakistan escalated quickly this week as the two historic rivals exchanged air fire over the disputed Kashmir region for the first time in 50 years. It all came to a head when an Indian pilot was captured by the Pakistani military. The pilot is a guy named Abhinandan Navarthaman, and on Wednesday he was flying his fighter jet during the first aerial dogfight between India and Pakistan in 50 years. Joanna Slater is the India bureau chief for The Post. In that ensuing confrontation, his plane was hit. It crashed on the Pakistani side of the line in Kashmir. Apparently, he had to parachute out of his plane. When he landed and discovered he was in Pakistan, he was confronted by angry locals. Apparently, he fired into the air with a pistol to try to ward off the mob and also attempted to swallow sensitive documents uh, before he was uh, rescued, basically, by Pakistani soldiers who helped him get first aid and then took him into their custody. Um, What was your vision? I'm sorry, I'm not supposed to tell you this. Let's take a step back in terms of the events that have unfolded this week What started this escalation between India and Pakistan? To understand where this started, you actually have to go back a tiny bit further, and that is to February 14th. So that was the day when a massive suicide bombing took place in uh, India's part of Kashmir. Kashmir is the Himalayan region that both India and Pakistan have claimed for seven decades, but it's divided between the two of them. So there was a massive suicide bombing in the Indian side, which killed 40 paramilitary officers. It was the worst militant attack in three decades uh, in Kashmir. So 
India vowed to respond, and the way it vowed to respond is against Pakistan because the group that claimed responsibility for this attack is based in Pakistan. It's called Jaish-e-Mohammed. So once India vowed to respond, it was really only a question of time uh, and how long and what form that response would take. So we got the answer to that question on Tuesday, which is when India launched an airstrike inside Pakistan on what it said was a Jaish-e-Mohammed training camp. And that's what started the hostilities we saw this week. Tell us a little bit about the historic tensions between India and Pakistan, because obviously they have lasted for decades and decades, even more than the 50 years. The tension between India and Pakistan goes right back to the creation of both countries in 1947, when India gained its independence and Pakistan was created in the partition of British India. It was a very bloody uh, partition, uh, and both countries carry some very traumatic memories uh, from that time. And one source of conflict that has endured from that time is Kashmir itself. Uh, Kashmir's status was never fully resolved in the partition. So what you have in Kashmir is a dispute over both who should have the territory and also who is responsible for violence in the territory, because India has long accused Pakistan of sheltering and supporting groups that cross into Indian territory and launch uh, attacks there. Pakistan denies that, but its intelligence services do have long links to these militant groups. So obviously things were hostile between the two nations. What are the leaders of both of these nations saying now? You know, do they want to de-escalate the situation or is it going to go to the next level? It does seem now that things have definitively de-escalated for the time being. There is not uh, bellicose talk on either side uh, of the border today and ever since yesterday when Pakistan's Prime Minister Imran Khan said that he was going to release this pilot, uh, things have eased uh, considerably on both sides. But as you note, the, the fundamental issue, the issue that began all of this, which is Pakistan's alleged support of militant groups who carry out attacks in Kashmir and other parts of India, that issue has not been resolved to India's satisfaction. So it is possible that we could see these tensions return not tomorrow and not next week, but somewhere down the road. What is the significance of Pakistan releasing the pilot so quickly? And how did that decision come about? I think the significance of the speedy release has to do with a couple of things. The first is international pressure. You had a fair number of countries stepping in to try and help de-escalate the situation, including the United States. We have, I think, reasonably attractive news from Pakistan and India. They've been going at it, and we've been involved in trying to have them stop. And we have some reasonably decent news. I think, hopefully, that's going to be coming to an end. It's been going on for a long time. One of the scary aspects, of course, about any conflict between India and Pakistan is that both do have nuclear weapons. And one doesn't know precisely what the line is for either country in terms of when they would actually use them. I think that point 
is still, of course, very far away. Neither country has any interest in nuclear conflict. But that uncertainty and ambiguity is, is one of the scary things about hostilities between these two countries. Obviously, tensions are already high. You know, can we expect more aggression like this in the near future? I don't think in the near future, but I think we certainly are looking at a new landscape. One of the things that Narendra Modi sought to do here was to change the way India responds to major terrorist attacks. And if he's trying to change the paradigm whereby when an attack like this occurs, India launches an airstrike in Pakistan, then we could see some volatile situations in the future. Joanna Slater is the India Bureau Chief for The Post. And now, one more thing. Journalists think special counsel Robert Mueller could deliver his final report any day now. And while a lot of his investigation has taken place behind closed doors, there's a spot where reporters can get at least a glimpse into his investigation. It's not an ugly building. It's, it's stately, but it's fairly bland. It's, a, it's an appropriate place. That's features writer Avi Selk. And he has been spending time at this courthouse, waiting alongside the journalists trying to make sense of what could be the final days of the Mueller investigation. So we're standing in front of the E. Barrett Prettyman United States Courthouse, the same district courthouse that hosted the Watergate trials and is now hosting the Mueller investigation trials. And now, as in the 1970s, this is about as close as the public can actually get to them. In some cases, you can walk right through the doors and go witness some of the trials or hearings actually happening. It's been like that pretty much since the beginning of the investigation. Literally any time anything is going on related to the Mueller investigations, there is activity. Uh, in the case of a week ago when Stone was here for a public hearing, it was, uh, you know, it's a cliche, it was like a circus. You just saw her in there. She went the other way. Okay. So, you know, there's a hundred or more people in line to go into the actual courtroom and more outside, and they really run the gamut. You know, there's a lot of journalists, obviously. There's a lot of fairly strange people holding very, you know, large font signs. There were people that remember being at the same courthouse during the Watergate hearings, which is nearly half a century ago. And I guess they... uh, see some parallel or nostalgia, maybe. There's, you know, bloggers and radio hosts. There's people in sweatshirts and people in sneakers. There's people in, you know, full three-piece suits. There's no rhyme or reason to the people that, that are sort of compelled to come watch these things. Anytime somebody related to the investigation sneezes in this courtroom, there's somebody there taking notes and trying to figure out, you know, what the import of that sneeze means for Trump literally every single detail of this investigation is scooped up and collected by the public in some capacity, whether it's through spectacle or whether it's just a few reporters kind of lurking in the hallway, because it it all might be so vitally important one day. Mueller himself is actually rarely seen in this courtroom. He'll send his prosecutors here to do the hearings, 
I guess once in a while he may be spotted, maybe for grand jury stuff, but he generally works from afar. If the final report really is the final, final, final report and the end of the investigation, that's probably uh, the end of these, you know, 15 minutes of fame for the old Prettyman courthouse. Uh, There will still be stuff to finish up, but I don't think the report will be delivered here, and that'll probably put an end to a lot of the public fervor around, you know, this place and the investigation. Avi Selk is a features reporter for The Post. That's it for Post Reports. Our executive producer is Madalika Sika. Our senior producer is Matt Collette. Our producers are Alexis Diao, Rena Flores, Lena Muhammad, Maggie Penman, Jordan Marie Smith, and Ted Muldoon, who composes original music and does sound design for the show. The Post Director of Audio is Jess Stahl. I'm Kimbrielle Kelly, filling in for Martine Powers. We'll be back Monday with more stories from The Washington Post.